0: Section 7 of Symbolism by Johann Adam Moller. Translated by James Burton Robertson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Memoirs of Dr. Moller, Part 5. He now began to deliver lectures on the doctrinal differences between Catholics and Protestants, the errors of his time, as I before observed, the struggles the Catholic Church had to encounter and the oppression she had to endure, by rendering her position very analogous to her state in the age of the great Athanasius, had At first induced Moeller to compose the work that has just been described, but now he resolved to grapple more closely and directly with the errors of his age, judging that the most effectual method to bring about the return of our erring brethren to the Catholic Church, as well as to awaken many Catholics themselves from their state of torpor, was to set forth with accuracy the points of doctrine which divide the churches. He commenced a thorough investigation into the public formularies of the various Protestant communities, as well as the private writings of the Reformers, and their most eminent disciples. This was a field which had been but partly tilled by preceding laborers, and which offered much to reward the industry of a new cultivator, the course of lectures which, in the year 1828, Muller opened on this important subject, soon attracted a crowded auditory, and every year they were received by the students with increasing interest and attention. The fame of these lectures getting abroad, the Prussian government made to Moeller the offer of a theological professorship at the University of Breslau in Silesia, an offer which he immediately declined the Wurttemberg government now nominated him Professor Ordinary of Theology at the University of Tubingen, a nomination that was confirmed by the theological faculty, which at the same time conferred on him the honor of Doctor of Divinity. At length, in the year 1832, the great work, whose fame the public had long anticipated, issued from the press under the title, quote, Symbolism, or exposition of the doctrinal differences between Catholics and Protestants as evinced by their symbolical writings. Unquote. The sensation it produced throughout all Germany, Protestant as well as Catholic, was prodigious, perhaps unparalleled in the history of modern theological literature. Hailed by Catholics with joy and exultation, its transcendent merits were openly acknowledged by the most eminent and estimable Protestants. The celebrated Protestant theologian and philosopher, Clear Verascher, declared it to be the severest blow ever given to Protestantism. Another very distinguished Protestant professor of philosophy, at Bonn, candidly confessed that none of the Protestant replies at all came up to it in force of reasoning. Quote, Germany, says a French journal of high merit, so parceled out into different states, so divided in religious belief, Germany, where opinion is not centralized in a single city, but where the taste of Vienna is checked by the critics of Göttingen, Munich, or Berlin. Germany, with one voice, extols the merits of Molaire's symbolism, unquote. The Université Catholique, page 75, volume 11. But this testimony is not exaggerated. The rapid sale of the work will show. For in the course of six years, it passed through five editions, each consisting of from three to four thousand copies, which were nearly as much sought for in Protestant as in Catholic Germany. It was adopted by several universities as a textbook. was translated into Latin and Italian by the papal nuncio of Switzerland, and into French by M. Lachat. The same French critic, as before observed, termed the symbolism quote, an indispensable complement to Beset's immortal history of the variations, unquote. This has suggested to me a parallel between the two works. Looking to the plan and the matter of the two books, I may call the work of the illustrious French prelate a more external, that of the German theologian a more internal, history of Protestantism. In the first place, the Bishop of Mew points out with admirable skill the endless variations and inconsistencies of Protestantism. So does the German professor, yet the inconsistencies and variations, which in the pages of the former appeared isolated, unconnected, accidental phenomena, the latter shows to be bound by the ties of a necessary, though secret, connection. In a word, Möller, not contending with proving the many mutations and self-contradictions of Protestantism, and its repugnance to reason and revelation, sets forth its consistency also. I mean... The filiation of its doctrine, and the concatenation of its errors. Secondly, the French prelate confines his attention to the two leading sects of the Reformation, the Lutheran and the Calvinistic, and expressly informs us in the preface to his work that his intention is, quote, not to speak of the Socinians, nor of the several communities of Anabaptists, nor of so many different sects, which in England and elsewhere have sprung up in the bosom of the Reformation. Unquote. A resolution that was the more to be regretted, as the description of these sects would not only have lent a fresh charm to his historic narrative, but have vastly increased the weight and extended the compass of his argument, and that sagacious mind, which, in the funeral oration on Queen Henrietta, had cast such an intuitive glance into the history of our domestic troubles, would, doubtless, have given an admirable portraiture, of the various and multitudinous sects of the Cromwellian era. Yet we must remember that in the course of his work, said had more particularly in view the Calvinists of his own country. This void is supplied in the symbolism, for the history and the dogmas of the minor sects of Protestantism are fully analyzed and described. A portion of the work, which is certainly not the least important, and to the English reader, perhaps the most interesting and attractive. Thirdly, Husset, who lived at a period when Protestantism had just entered on the second stage of its existence, not only with the most masterly skill traced its progressive development from its birth down to his own days, but foretold the course of its future destinies. From his lofty, eyrie, the Eagle of Mew, beheld the whole coming history of Protestantism, he snuffed from afar the tempestuous clouds of irreligion that were to spring from its already agitated waters, and the whirlwind of impiety that was to convulse Christianity to its senate. Muller, on the other hand, cannot be said to bring the history of the Reformation down to his own times, for with the exception of the Hernhutters, the Methodists, and the Swedenborgians, the sects whose doctrines he examined were not posterior to the age of Busset. The new and prodigious forms which, within the last sixty years, Protestantism, in Germany especially, has assumed, the doctrines of rationalism and pietism, that, as the reader has already seen, have quite superseded those of the elder Protestantism, are, as was before stated, for the reasons assigned in the work itself, left unnoticed by the author of the symbolism. It may at first sight appear singular that a work which has excited so prodigious a sensation throughout Germany, which has been read by Protestants as well as Catholics, with an avidity that proves it responded to a want generally felt, should have left untouched the existing forms of Protestantism, and been exclusively engaged with the refutation of those antiquated doctrines, that though in certain Protestant countries they may still retain some influence and authority, can count in Protestant Germany but a small number of adherents. How is this fact to be accounted for? I must observe that, although the symbolism abstains from investigating the modern systems of Protestantism, yet it presupposes throughout their existence, and the work itself could never have appeared if Protestantism had not attained its ultimate term of development. Present forms of Protestantism, moreover, being only a necessary development of its earlier errors, a solid and vigorous refutation of the latter must needs overthrow the former but there is yet another and more special reason which in despite of first appearances rendered this work eminently opportune a portion of the german protestants as we have seen recoiling from the abyss to which rationalism was fast conducting them sought a refuge in falling back on the old symbolical books of the lutheran and calvinistic churches whose authority for upwards of sixty years had been totally disregarded. This movement of minds was seconded by some Protestant princes, particularly by the late King of Prussia, who had learned from bitter experience the disastrous political consequences which the doctrines of rationalism are calculated to produce. This sovereign, who was as skillful and ecclesiastical as he was a military tactician, in order to escape from the two enemies, Catholicism and Rationalism, who were galling his flanks, sounded the trumpet for retreat, and, assisted by an able staff of theologians, was making a rapid retrograde march on the old formularies, the bulwarks of Protestant orthodoxy, which for more than half a century, neglected and dilapidated, had remained utterly untenanted. Moeller watched his moment, fell with terrific onslaught on the retreating forces, blew up the old Protestant strongholds, compelled the enemy to retrace his steps, and brought him at last into such straits that he must now either make an unconditional surrender to the Church, or be swept down the abyss of pantheism. This is the origin and the meaning of the present book. This is, in part, the cause of its prodigious success. Thus, it not only presupposes the extinction of the elder, more orthodox Protestantism, but... In so far as any human production can accomplish such a thing, it effectually will prevent its revival. Fourthly, if we look to the form of these two remarkable productions of the human mind, which I have ventured to compare, the history of the variations is characterized in an eminent degree by logical perspicuity. The symbolism, at least equal to it in dialectic force, is vastly superior in philosophic depth the learning displayed in the former work is quite sufficient for its purpose, and when we consider the period at which it was written, the comparative paucity of materials accessible to its illustrious author, and the then state of historical researches, we are astonished at the extent and the critical soundness of the learning there exhibited. Mr. Hallen, however, in his History of Literature, complains that Bousset, had not given his citations from Luther in the Latin original, so that he himself had often been unable to verify his quotations. This complaint, at least, he will be unable to prefer against the symbolism, where the Latin citations from Luther and the other patriarchs of the Reformation are given with a fullness and an exactness that must satisfy, perhaps rather more than satisfy, our fastidious critic. The erudition displayed in the symbolism is admitted on all hands to be the most extensive and profound. Its style is clear, forcible, and dignified, but in point of eloquence, the Bishop of Mew ever remains the unrivaled master. The symbolism called forth many replies from Protestant theologians such as Nietzsche, Marhineke, and Dr. Bauer of Tubingen. The work of the latter, which was the longest and most elaborate, was entitled, quote, Opposition Between Catholicism and Protestantism, according to the leading dogmas of the two religious systems, with special reference to molar symbolism, unquote. to Bingen, 1833. Of this work, a writer in the Conversations Lexicon thus speaks, quote, that Protestant writers should stand up in defense of a church to which Muller denies every right, save that of political existence, was very natural. But it is equally certain that in an inquiry, wherein the symbolical writings only of the different churches possess a decisive authority, a Hegelian, with its subjective views, and the attempt to enforce these as the doctrine of the evangelical church, could play no brilliant part. Yet in this false position we find Dr. Bauer, whose writings, moreover, is not exempt from personal attacks against his adversary, Muller replied, without delay, and in a tone of suitable dignity, in a work entitled New Investigations into the Doctrinal Differences Between Catholics and Protestants, Mayence, 1834. This work will be found a most valuable appendix to the symbolism, although no inconsiderable portion of it has been incorporated into the edition from which the present translation has been made. The personal acrimony which Dr. Bauer had infused into the controversy with the subject of this memoir, as well as the intrigues set on foot to alienate the Wurttemberg government from the latter, who was represented as a disturber of religious peace, rendered his abode in Tubingen daily more unpleasant and irksome. The Prussian government, probably appraised of this state of things, renewed negotiations with Muller in the view of obtaining his services for one of its universities. Yet these negotiations, credible to the prudence and discernment of the Prussian government, a second time failed through the opposition of the Hermesian party. This party already a most formidable opponent to encounter in the celebrated Klee, professor of theology at Bonn, and it was evident that the accession of Muller to the theological faculty, or indeed to any other in the Prussian states, would be most detrimental to the influence and adverse to the projects of the party. Count von Spiegel, then Archbishop of Cologne and predecessor to that illustrious confessor, whose humiliation prepared the triumph of the German Church, and whose captivity was the prelude to her liberation, Count von Spiegel, I say, a worldly-minded courtier, little acquainted with theology, was alternately the tool of the Hermesians and the Prussian government. His sanction as Archbishop of Cologne was necessary for the confirmation of Moeller's appointment to a theological chair at Bonn. To the latter, he addressed a letter requiring as the condition to such a sanction the public retraction of the work entitled Unity of the Church, just as if Moeller, with Hermesian obstinacy, had continued to defend in the face of the Church, and as the doctrine of the Church, what its highest tribunal had formerly and solemnly condemned. He wrote back to the Archbishop of Cologne that the mistakes, such as they were in his first work, were entirely rectified in his subsequent productions, and it may be added that he had never been called upon by the competent authorities to make a public recantation of any opinion therein contained. It was indeed truly ridiculous that while purity of doctrine and glowing love for the Church, as well as profound genius, were claiming for the illustrious author of Athanasius and the symbolisms, the respect and admiration of Germany and Europe, the organ of a party that had for years broached pernicious doctrines, evinced a marked disrespect for ecclesiastical tradition and subsequently displayed a most obstinate resistance to the authority of the Church, should, forsooth, take exception to Moller's orthodoxy. Here it may be proper to make a few remarks on the position which he had taken up in relation to this party. It has sometimes been asked why he did not appear in the list against the Hermesians. Many reasons may be assigned for his not taking an active part in this controversy. In the first place, his opposition would have been ascribed to motives of personal resentment against a body of men, through whose intrigues he had been twice thwarted in the attainment of an honorable and lucrative professorship. Secondly, the Hermesian system, unsupported by a single theologian of eminence, had been prostrated by the vigorous arm of Clee. Thirdly, the Holy See, having pronounced a solemn sentence of condemnation, the view which all Catholics were to take of this system could no longer be problematic. Fourthly, the utter disgraceful part that the Hermesians had played in the tyrannical proceedings of the Prussian government against Count von Drost-Bashirring, the venerable Archbishop of Cologne, drew down upon them the general odium of Catholic Germany. Lastly, the tactics of this party was to avoid an open, dispassionate, scientific discussion of principles and to drag into the controversy matters of personal dispute, and even of ecclesiastical administration, a course of warfare, where even victory, was somewhat ignoble, and which, above all things, was abhorrent to the gentle disposition and elevated feelings of Mohler. But there was another party in the Church, with whom he came in more immediate contact, the so-called liberals of Catholic Germany, whom I have already had occasion to describe. This party, whose principal seat was in Baden and Württemberg, had, as has already been observed, exerted some influence over the youthful mind of Muller, and the last faint tinge of their principles is traceable in his first production, Unity of the Church. But his mature genius, his more extended acquaintance with ecclesiastical antiquity, and above all his advances in piety, had revealed to him the hollow pretensions and dangerous tendencies of this party in the year eighteen twenty seven he published his celebrated essay on sacerdotal celibacy that inflicted on this party a wound from which it has never since recovered in this masterly production he proves the apostolic antiquity of clerical celibacy its conformity with reason and with the most ancient traditions of nations its close connection with the most sacred dogmas and essential institutions of the Church, as well as the occasions that led to a partial deviation from the law. And after showing why the enemies of sacerdotal celibacy must necessarily be the foes of ecclesiastical independence and the papal supremacy, he stigmatizes the Baden churchmen for their shallow theological learning, in despite of all their high pretensions to general knowledge, for their carnal-minded tendencies, their often profligate habits, and their political harlotries with the secular power. This essay was in the year 1829, followed up by another, entitled, quote, Fragments on the False Decradles, unquote, where with much skill and learning, the author wrested from the enemies of the papal authority one of their most favorite weapons of attack. The rage of the anti-celibates was, as we may suppose, wound up to the highest pitch muller was denounced as an apostate an ultramontanist a roman obscurantist and his fame which grew from year to year served only to embitter the animosity and stimulate the assaults of this paltry faction while the great genius of the illustrious author of athanasius and the symbolism was hailed with joy by Catholic and recognized with respect by protestant germany these false brethren had discovered that he was devoid of talent and erudition. They openly gave the palm of victory to his Protestant opponent, Dr. Bauer, and in one of their periodicals, were shameless enough, while they denominated the symbolism a violation of religious peace, to avow their satisfaction with the mythical theory of the blasphemous Strauss, a proof, if further were wanting, how utterly many of these so-called, liberals, had apostatized from the principles of that church whose communion they still so audaciously profane it was not however by his writings only that this excellent man opposed the progress and defeated the projects of a dangerous faction by his amiable disposition and engaging manners as well as by his great reputation he had gained an extraordinary influence over the minds of his pupils and this influence he employed to inspire these young theologians with a zeal for the cause and interest of the Church, a deep veneration for the Holy See, a love for the duties of their future calling, and a noble passion for learning. Nor was the beneficial influence of his example and exhortation confined to his pupils alone. During the ten years he filled the professorial chair at Tübingen, a complete change came over the Catholic theological faculty of that university. Such of its members as had hitherto been sound in doctrine, but timid in its avowal, like Doctor Dre, took courage by moler's example, and such who, like Herscher, had been to some extent led away by neological doctrines, were now, partly through that example, partly by their own researches, gradually reclaimed. The evidence of this change is afforded by the theological quarterly review of Tubingen, which from the year 1828, breathes a very different spirit, and which, supported as it was by Moeller and his most distinguished colleagues and disciples, has remained, down to the present day, by its orthodoxy, its learning, and its philosophic spirit, an ornament to literature and the Church. The noble attitude which, in the present struggle for the liberties of their Church, the younger members of the Swabian clergy have taken, the zeal and courage wherewith, they defend their spiritual rights and rally the people round that sacred standard. The talent and learning they evince in defense of their religion are all, according to a recent public acknowledgement of the Prime Minister of Württemberg, in the assembled states, mainly attributable to the influence of Muller. Yet, the spot which was dear to him from so many early associations where the Lord had blessed his labors where he had won so many brilliant victories over the enemies of the faith, he was now, for the reasons above averted to, about to quit. At the commencement of the year 1835, a theological chair at Munich became vacant, and the king of Bavaria, with that enlightened zeal which makes him ever attentive to the promotion of the interests of the Church and the advancement of Catholic learning, solicited on this occasion the services of Mahler, to this proposal, the latter immediately acceded, and deeply regretted by his friends, his colleagues, and the academic youth, he quitted to and arrived at Munich in the spring of the same year. Warmly welcomed by his friends at the Bavarian capital, and enthusiastically greeted by its students, he immediately opened a course of lectures on St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, which was soon followed up by others on church history, patrology, as well as commentaries on various epistles of St. Paul. This seems to me the most proper place to speak of the various theological and historical essays that Muller contributed to periodical pages, and especially to the Theological Quarterly Review of Tübingen. These essays have since his death been collected by his friend, Dr. Dollinger, and published in two volumes. They are as follows. 1 an investigation of the dispute between St. Jerome and St. Augustine on the 14th verse of the second chapter of Galatians. 2. A critical inquiry into the period of publication of the epistle to Diognetus, usually attributed to St. Justin, and an analysis of its contents. 3. An historical sketch of St. Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, and his times. 4 an essay on clerical celibacy. 5. Short considerations on the historical relation of universities to the state. 6. Fragments on the false decretals. 7. An essay on the relation of Islam to the gospel. 8. An essay on the origin of Gnosticism. The second volume contains the following. 1. Considerations on the state of the church during the 15th and at the commencement of the 16th century. 2. An Essay on Saint-Simonianism. 3. Fragmentary Sketches on the Abolition of Slavery. 4. Letters to the Abe Batur of Strasbourg on his System of Philosophy. 5. Rise in the First Period of Monasticism. A Fragment. 6 two articles on the imprisonment of the Archbishop of Cologne. It does not enter into the plan of his memoir to give an analysis of these collected essays, which certainly furnish new evidence of the author's great historical as well as theological learning, his critical acuteness, his depth of observation, and elegance of style. The most remarkable piece in this miscellaneous collection are the already noticed essay on clerical celibacy, that on Gnosticism, the beautiful fragment on the early history of monasticism, which was to form part of a large work on the monastic orders of the West, and the essay on Islam that has received its due meat of praise from one of our own Protestant critics. Quote, This essay of Möller's, says a writer in a number of the quarterly review that appeared two years ago, was composed with an express view towards the progress of Christianity in the East, and the question how it might be offered in the most commanding and persuasive manner to Mahometans. It is written with so much learning, judgment, and moderation, that it might be well worthy of translation in some of our religious journals. Unquote. End of section 7